The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. If you have your Bible with you today, I want to encourage you to open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat uh, in front of you, and you can find 1 Corinthians 5 on page 713. And if you're using the YouVersion app, which is probably the easiest way to follow along, we have all of the verses that we're going to be talking about today uh, listed in there. And we're going to be, again, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8. We're back into our series on Corinth, Conflict, Compromise, and Christ uh, this morning. We started this back in September of last year, and if if we were to have like a, like a subtitle for what we're going to be talking about over the next, probably the next few months, I would really call this um, answers to some of life's most complex questions. As I've been reading through and, and thinking about these, um, these particular texts, I really see what Paul is doing after he's, after he's sort of dealt with the issues that are taking place internally in the church, he moves on to their questions. They had questions about how they were supposed to live their lives as Christians in Corinth. And the church was, as we've talked about, the church was filled with lots of misconceptions of the gospel. They were believing false gospels and they were acting in all of these different ways. So they write to Paul and they, they ask questions and, and what, what's going to happen again over the next, probably through the rest of 1 Corinthians is, compla- is answers to the life's most complex questions. And some of those questions that we're going to talk about at least over the next six weeks are what, what is the Christian sexual ethic? So if, you, if you're offended by that word sexual, um, you're in for a treat for the next month and a half. I want to encourage you to read through the things that we're going to be talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 through chapter 7. Um, some of you, like, we're just going to go for it. I, I have a group of people who, are, who work on the prayer cards uh, for us. They create these. These are in the back today when you leave. And it's Anne and Kim and Chris. And kind of the, the process that we go through is I tell them what we're going to be preaching on. And then they get together and they read through the verses and they, they kind of line up what, what we want our body to be praying, what we're going to ask our body to be praying about and as they were reading through this, Anna's Anna's sitting uh, in our living room, and they're and they're kind of um, texting back and forth. And and someone I don't remember which which one of them said something like, "If I were John, I would preach all of chapters five, six, and seven at one time and just move on." Um, and well, that person isn't me. Um, so we're gonna like we're just gonna dig in. And what we're going to find is Paul is going to address some of our, not just the time of the Corinthians and some of their most complex questions, but Paul is going to address some of our most complex questions. What, what is the sexual ethic of the Christian and, and how does that impact what takes place in the church? And how do we, how do we love, honor, and serve people who, who are Christians who have a different sexual ethic than us and people who aren't Christians who have a different se- sexual ethic than us? How do, we, how do we love, honor, and serve people in the midst of that? How do we do things like disagree 
As I think about the fact that we're in an election year, we probably, as Christians, we probably ought to know how to disagree. We probably ought to know how to disagree well, not just with, not just with the world, but with one another. Um, Paul's going to talk about issues of identity, which is certainly an issue in our own day and time. And then he's going to devote an entire chapter to marriage. See, these are, these are issues that are real for us today. And, and we would not be doing the Bible uh, a, a good service if we just crammed it all together and, and moved through it and didn't actually spend time talking about these things. And the discomfort that you are, you are going to feel over the next six weeks is, is going to start today in this text. And what I want to encourage you to do is the same thing I encourage you anytime we read, read a text in Scripture and we're uncomfortable with it. I want, you, I want you to lean into it. I want you to press into it. We need to ask, why, why is this making me feel uncomfortable? So Paul is going to deal in, in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 to 8, he's going to answer two, he's going to deal with two questions. This is, this is verse 1, and I just want you to follow along with me in your Bible. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something even the pagans don't do. I'm told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. So here's the first sin that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a man in their church who is living in sin, who's sleeping with his stepmother. And what we need to do is, as people who live in 2024, we ought to ask some questions of this text. One of those questions would be, um, why is this wrong? Why is, why is this particular thing sinful? On what on what basis can we make the claim that this is wrong? Like, wh- like what's the big deal about this as, as people who live in 2024? Why would we look into this? And, and why would we answer the question, like, why is this wrong? What's, what's the problem? So as much as I said, if I were to have a subtitle for this portion of the series, I would actually have a subtitle for this portion of this message. And that subtitle would be love is not love. Love is not love. See, what our, what our culture does, the behaviors and customs of our culture say, love is love. The behaviors and customs of our culture kind of break it down to the, the lowest common denominator, which is if, if, it's a, if it's a consensual relationship, if it's two adults consenting, although in 2024 it doesn't have to be two adults, if it's two or more adults who are consensual, then what's the big deal? Love is love. People can do what they want to. Love is love. They're adults. They consent. But here's reality. As good as that sounds, we all know that at some point we're all drawing a line, right? We all have, we all have a line that we would draw 
when it comes to two consenting adults, for instance, um, we, might, we would probably draw the line, we'd begin drawing that line at familial relationships. We would certainly say that just because a father and his daughter are consenting adults, we would surely say that that was wrong. We would surely draw a line. When we get into the business world and we think about who works for whom in those relationships, we, we would talk about things like power dynamics. See, we would all come to this place where we would say that, no, in fact, love is not love. It doesn't matter if they are two consenting adults. One of them works for the other, and there's a power dynamic that plays in that. And someone is maybe being abused in that situation. And ultimately, what we're, what we're doing when we fall into that moment of, of determining these lines and determining these policies, we're, we're looking at it very subjectively. And you've probably noticed this, but just in the last five years, the rules have changed about, about what those relationships look like, the appropriateness or the inappropriateness of those relationships. Last year, Anne and I, I think I've talked about this before, Anne and I watched, um, we binged the series Friday Night Lights. Do you remember that series? Um, we binge watched the series Friday Night Lights. And what was, what was interesting as we, as we watched this, and this is something that she pointed out to me, that, um, that several of the plot lines were around, um, around who was sleeping with who, like across ages. Sometimes it was, it was a high school student with an adult female. Sometimes it was a college teacher with one of his female students. And what was so interesting about that, the appropriateness of those relationships was determined by the story the writers wanted to tell. So if, if the writers wanted to tell a story of, of love and acceptance, then, then it didn't matter what that age differential was. If they wanted to tell a different story of the inappropriateness of those kind of relationships, well then they would tell that story as well. See, it was very subjective. It was determined by the story that they wanted to tell. And I think this is, this is the culture that we live in. As we think about sexual relationships, the appropriateness or inappropriateness of sexual relationships is determined by what story our culture wants to tell. And that is subject to change. So we have to be very aware of this. We have to be very cognizant of this. Is it any wonder that we live in an age of confusion? As people who have, have grown up in this and watching all of these rules and all of these lines and as they change and as they morph and they get modified by whatever week, like the flavor of the moment, the morality of the moment, is it any wonder that we live in an age that is dramatically confused on sexuality and identity issues? What's interesting is in this particular situation, at least in this time, even the pagans knew it was wrong. Even the, the Roman culture knew that this was wrong. And the Roman culture was pretty out there when it came to sexual activity. But they, they had a line. And what's taking place in the church is something that even the pagans know is wrong. And what Paul's going to do over the next several chapters, and this is, this is the time where we got to just lean into what Scripture's telling us here. And this is why we got to lean into all of Scripture 
and understand all of Scripture, what Paul's going to do over the next three chapters is he's going he's to give a defining line, an objective line for what is appropriate sexual behavior and what is inappropriate sexual behavior. And if you've read the Bible you know that the dividing line, the objective dividing line for what's inappropriate and appropriate when it comes to sexual behavior is one man, one woman, married. That's, that's the objective line that Paul is going to draw. Because he knows that anything else is subjective. Anything else is what we feel like having. So this, this issue in the church, this man is sleeping is having sex with his father's wife. And it's a sin. It's wrong. And it really doesn't matter what the Romans think of it, although at least in this case, the Romans seem to agree with Scripture. What matters is it goes against what God's word is, and what it goes against what God's plan and his design for human sexuality is. That's why it's a sin. That's why it's a problem. But that's not all. Let's look at verses 2 through 5. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame. And you should remove this man from your fellowship. Even though I'm not with you in person, I'm with you in spirit. And as though I were there, I've already passed judgment on this man in the name of the Lord Jesus. You must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns." See, this is, this is the second sin. So there, there are two sins going on here, and Paul is going to address both of them. The first sin is what the guy's doing, what the man is doing. The second sin, then, is what the church is doing. And what the church is doing is they're not just merely tolerant of the sin, but they are fully accepting this sin to the point of pride. It's a point of pride for them. They are what Paul's going to say in a few verses is they're boasting about it. They're proud of what's taking place. See, they had become so calloused to, to what God was calling them to do, who God was calling them to be, that they became proud. They knew what God wanted them to do, and they were so hardened to it, their hearts were so hardened to it, that they'd become proud. And honestly, this is nothing new. As we talked about in the first four chapters of the, Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, they'd, they'd been ignoring God all along. They'd been acting like they were smarter than God all along, believing this false gospel. And now this arrogance that's taking place that they've been demonstrating by their actions and their activities, it's now starting to spill over into other areas of their lives. See, they're so proud of themselves from the first four chapters. They're, they're proud of their wisdom and of their eloquent speech. And they're proud of their favorite speakers that they, they can't see the sin that's in front of them. They're so wrapped up in themselves that they can't see the sin that's in front of them. And when they reject something that is so critical as the cross of Christ, the wisdom of 
of God. When they, when they reject that, of course, they're going to reject every other aspect of who God is. That's, that's the first domino to fall. Right? Looking over there and seeing the cross on our wall as a reminder, as a tangible reminder of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. And if that, if that cross comes off the wall and we don't have a reminder of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, and remember that the only reason we are in relationship with him is because of God's grace, once we give that cross up, once we give up the fact that Jesus paid for our sin with his body, once we give that up, then we can just go ahead and believe whatever we want to. Because it doesn't matter. See, they should be filled with grief and sorrow. This grief and sorrow should provoke them to take action. They should remove this man from their fellowship, but instead they're proud. And this is, this is a lesson for us. When we are confronted with our own sin, when we are confronted with our own sinfulness, we too have a choice. We can repent and we can take action and we can eradicate the sin from our lives. We can eliminate the sin from our lives. Or we can maintain that sin and we can become proud and arrogant and think, God's not going to do anything. He's, he's, God is love. God is merciful. God is kind. And those things are true. Those things are accurate. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, God is also just. And God is also holy. And the church at Corinth chose the second one. They, they chose to double down on their sin and proudly and arrogantly embrace their sin. And Paul is, Paul is not going to allow that to take place. And, and we read this text and we might think, man, like that escalated quickly, right? Maybe you've heard that phrase over the last several years. That escalated quickly. How do we go from this guy who's, who's doing this sin to kick him out? Like, that seems like, that seems a rash response. It seems a little quick. But one of the things that we talked about in our staff meeting um, this past week is we have to remember when we, when we read a letter, um, as we've talked about this before, uh, we're hearing one side of a phone call. Does that make sense? Like, we know that members of Chloe's household wrote a letter to Paul telling him all of the things that are going on there. Um, but we don't know what that letter said because we don't have it. We know a few things. We know that this household told Paul what was going on, so he's addressing it. But we don't know all of the steps and the things that the church in Corinth put into place before they got to this point. Like when we read in Matthew 18, and it talks about, this is something we will be talking more about in a few weeks, about how we dispute with one another, how we settle differences with one another. One of the things that Jesus says is if, is if, you, if someone has something against you or you have something against that person, you're supposed to go and talk to them. Step one, go and talk to them. If they don't listen, step two, take two or three people with you. And it, these are probably not one-time conversations. Might take place over time. And then the third step is go to the elders. 
And if that still doesn't work, then you remove this person from your fellowship. So we want to give the, the church at Corinth a little bit, as, as much as they're, I don't know what word I want to use, a nice one that I don't have in my head right now. As much as the church at Corinth have a bunch of problems, we know that there are believers there. And we can sort of assume that they, they tried to do the right thing. There were, there were some conversations. I can't imagine this is step one. So we want to give the church at Corinth a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. So we don't know everything that's going on there. But now they're at this point, and this is where the church is now, where the sin is public. It's no longer known by a small group of people within the body. Like everyone knows, everyone is talking about it, and it's so bad that it's affecting their external witness. It's so bad that this sin is, is known by people outside of the church. And, and there are probably some people in the church who are thinking, oh, man, we got to deal, like, what are we going to do about this? Probably people from Chloe's household, because they're the ones that seem like they have half a brain. We got to do something with this. We got to fix this. We can't let this sin continue and continue and continue. So Paul instructs them to call a meeting of the entire church. You need to get everyone together because public sin requires public condemnation. That way, everyone knows that it's been dealt with. Everyone knows exactly what's said. One of the things that I've seen over the past, over the past several years um, and I, and someone, I heard a phrase the other day that perfectly described it. Um, have you ever noticed if you are, if you're trying to communicate something and, and maybe the people that you're trying to communicate it to, not everyone is there. So people are going to hear like part of the story. This person's going to hear this part of the story. That person's going to hear that part of the story. And they're not really going to know the full thing. And the phrase that I heard the other day was when people don't hear the whole story, when they miss out on communication, What's going to happen is they're going to fill the gaps in communication in the most pathological way possible. So whatever they think they're missing in the story, like the, the, gap, the, the gap that they're going to fill is like the worst thing in the entire world. It, like it had to be that bad. So Paul gathers this whole, Paul tells them to gather the church together. To get together as a group because public sin needs to be publicly condemned. And everyone needed to know what's going on. And, and Paul wants to let them know that even though he's not with them physically, what he says is, he says, I'm with you in spirit. I'm with you. I'll be thinking about this. I'll be praying about it. And not in the, not in the 2024 way in which sometimes we say we pray for someone and we never do. Paul is saying, I'm praying for you, and I'm with you in spirit. And it's, it's not just me. He says, the power of the Lord Jesus is also with you. Jesus is with you as Christians. Implication not written in the text. You have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. God is with you. God is with you as you go and do this really hard thing. And the instruction is, is, is simple. 
throw the man out. And it says that this accomplishes um, two things. And again, like this, we need to lean in. Handing him over to Satan. Rough. Handing him over to Satan. That his sinful nature will be destroyed and that he will be saved when Jesus returns. See, we ought to ask a question. What, what good is kicking this guy out going to do? This would be a reasonable question that we would ask in our, as our emotions take over in this. Oh, man, we can't kick this person out. What's going to happen if we kick him out? What, what's what's going to take place? This is why we have to read the entire Bible, not just parts of it. Um, I put this in the YouVersion app. This is Romans 1, verses 21 to 32. I'm, I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. I, I would really... Um, encourage you to read Romans 1, 21 to 32 this week. But what those texts tell us, what Paul writes to the church at Rome in chapter 1, verses 21 to 32, is that, is that when we reject God and his plan, what the text tells us is, is, is God abandons us and lets us do what we want to. This is a in Romans 1, it's a people who know what God expects of them, and it's a people who don't want to do it. I don't want to be obedient to God. I don't want to follow his plan. I don't want to follow his purpose in my life. And so God says, so go. Go. Go and you do you, right? You do your thing. We don't want God's plans and purposes over us, so God hands us over to ourselves. And, and my guess is, for those of us who are Christians in the room, who've been in that phase you are, where, you are hand, where you are given over to your sin, question, how'd that work out for you? You tend to bottom out at some point. God's not doing this because he's unjust. God's not doing this because he doesn't love us. In fact, he's doing it because he does love us and because he is just. And what God wants us to see is the fruit of our sin. What God wants us to see is what happens when we just choose to live lives on our own. I saw this, saw this funny meme that was, um, I think it was on Facebook last week. And it was just two panels. And the first panel said something like, um, why didn't God just create a perfect world and put us into it? And then the second panel just said, uh. See, when we are, when we are left to our own devices, our cultural lie says that everything will be great. But the reality and history shows that that's quite the opposite. See, God is just. God is loving. And then we read 2 Timothy 2.26. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. For they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. That sink in for a moment. What's the purpose of letting us do whatever we want to? So that we might come to our senses. 
so that we might realize the chaos and the death and the destruction that we are not only bringing upon our own lives, but we're bringing into the lives of other people. So that we would have a moment of clarity and in a moment of, of awareness in our sinfulness and we would see what's taking place. And isn't that the story of what we call the prodigal son? You have two sons, one, one younger, one older. The younger son goes to his father and says, I want my inheritance. The father gives the son his inheritance. Sounds like abandoning him and giving him what he wants. He goes off to a foreign land where he, where he wastes the money and he, he squanders everything he has to the point where he's feeding pigs and Jews didn't feed pigs. Jews didn't have anything to do with pigs. And he's feeding pigs and he's realizing the food he's eating is the same food that the pigs are eating. And kind of in this moment, we have this really great picture of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy. Then they will come to their senses. He came to his senses. Man, even if I was a, even if I was a servant in my father's house, I'd be eating. Like, what, what, what's going on here? And then, if you're familiar with the story, you know, he's, he's going to go home and he's, he's telling, he's practicing his speech to his father. And his father comes out and, and meets him on the road because he's looking for him on the road. What we're seeing here is, is we're seeing the purpose of church discipline. This isn't some arbitrary thing to throw the guy out and never have anything to do with him again. This is an issue that has more than likely manifested itself over time and conversation and conversation and conversation and conversation didn't work and now we're at the point where public sin requires a public response. And You can't blame the church for this. If there was someone in our church that was functioning in such a way as to be anti-Christian, my guess is you, would, you all would want us to do something about it, wouldn't you? If we knew that someone was persisting in consistent sin, that, that, that was not only destroying them and their lives, but the lives of other people around them, um, we would, you, would, you would expect that the church would do something about it, Right? We would demand that they would. And my hunch is this guy has had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to stop doing what he's doing. And we're at this place where now the guy has to be removed. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5 verses 6 to 8. Your boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. 
Do you remember what we've been talking about as we've, as we've begun the letters in the New Testament that we begin? We, we always talk about the way how, God, how Paul doesn't start with their, with their problems. He always, he always reminds them of who Christ is and what he's done for them. Because right? he, he needs to orient them around their, their real identity. And this is what Paul is doing right here in this text. Is he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of their, of their core identity, of their true identity. He's reminding them of what Christ has done for them. And the church at Corinth loved to boast. They loved to boast about their wisdom they love to boast about their favorite speakers. They love to boast about their gifts and their talents and their skills. And now, they love to boast about their sin. They love to boast about their acceptance of their sin. And Paul says this, See, your boasting is not good because it's like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough. And this is something else we need to see from this, is that sin is contagious. Have you ever noticed that, that sin is contagious? There's no such thing as a little sin. There is not a sin that, that we commit that does not eventually impact and affect the lives of those around you. There's not one. Every sin eventually impacts and affects the lives of those around you. And some of you are a byproduct of that. Some of you are a byproduct of someone else's just follow your heart. I got to do what my heart tells me is right. I got I to do this thing. And then we're a byproduct of that, right? Like I know what the Bible says, but I got to follow my heart. Because me and Jesus, we have an understanding. He told me something differently. So I got to follow my heart. And my guess is, again, that each one of us is a byproduct at some point in our lives of someone else just following their heart. See, our sin is not little. Our sin is not small. Our sin is like this yeast that leavens the rest of the dough, that spreads out through the rest of the dough, and it, it makes it bigger, which is why when you're adding yeast to something, do you use a little bit of yeast or a lot of yeast? You only need a little because of what it does, because of the power of yeast. And this is exactly what sin does. See, by removing the man, they're removing the yeast. They're removing what is corrupting the rest of the church. They're removing the, what's corrupting their witness in Corinth. They're dealing with the issue in Corinth. And by removing this person, they can be who they are, which is bread. That's what Paul is telling them. They can be the body. They can be holy. This is God's purpose and plan and design for the church at Corinth. It's God's purpose and plan for the church at Westway. It's for us to be holy. Christ made them holy by his sacrifice for them. And when we put to the death the sins that are in our lives, we are becoming holy. We are joining him in his act. On the cross, Christ justified us. He made us his. 
He justified us. God sees us as justified. God sees us as righteous. God sees us as holy because of what Jesus has done on the cross for us. By paying for our sins, we are justified. And I don't know about you, but I know that there are things that I still struggle with. There are sins that I still struggle with. And what I'm called to do is I'm called to put those sins to the death. And that's what Christians call being sanctified. So we join him in his work when we work to root out and eradicate and eliminate the sin that's in each one of us. We join him in his work. We're not doing the work. We're joining him in his work. I would encourage you this week also to go back and and read through Exodus chapter 12. It's in you version talks about the importance of Passover and Paul is Paul is tapping into their shared history of Passover he actually he mentions it he says Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us and if you're at all familiar with the Old Testament you would know as they prepared for Passover they would get rid of all of the yeast in their house because they were supposed to make unleavened bread Passover is celebrated with unleavened bread. And the only way to do that, because it only takes a little bit of yeast, they would be maniacal in the way they went to get rid of yeast. Cleaning their entire house to make sure there was none in the house. Table Talk magazine um, describes it this way. The first leavened loaf of bread made after Passover took longer to create because there was no leaven to start it however once the dough was leavened one could take a piece of it to start leavening the next loaf this is kind of important to grasp we just started making um, sourdough at our house so we have like a starter so this like is like makes so much sense right now in light of that Once the dough was leavened, one could take a piece of it to start leavening the next loaf. Then you would take a piece of dough from the second loaf to make the next one. This continued throughout the year until just before Passover when all the leaven was discarded and a brand new dough was started that had no part of what came before it. See, this is the image that Paul is is tapping into. This is the history that Paul is tapping into in this church. He wants them to be unleavened. He wants them to have no yeast. See, Christ is removing the leaven of sin through his sacrifice, and now it was their responsibility to keep themselves holy. Christ has done this thing for me, and now I have a responsibility to keep myself holy, to work to keep myself holy, to work in conjunction with the Holy Spirit who dwells in me to keep myself holy. This man's sin could contaminate everything. So they had to get rid of it. So how do we protect the church? Because that's what's going on here. We proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, reminding people of who they are and whose they are. And I've shared this before. When I would drop John off at school, um, when we lived in Worthington, Minnesota, every morning I would say the same two things. John, remember whose you are and who you are. Remember your identity. Remember your identity. Remember your identity. And you probably have lots of questions about this. 
which is why Paul has an entire letter where he addresses them. I think that these issues for us about the, the Christian sexual ethic, the way we treat others who, who don't adhere to the Christian sexual ethic, both inside and outside the church, I think these are such crucial questions for our time. I think this is, I think this is an important series for us, and it has, it has nothing to do with whoever's going to be speaking up here. It has everything to do with answering some of life's most complex questions. And there are some hard things, some challenging things that we're going to read together. But God has given us his word so that we would do that. So we can read it. We can study it. We can access the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to know how to love, honor, and serve people who sin differently than us. See, as unleavened bread, without wickedness and evil, they and we will be sincere and holy. When we are unleavened bread, we will be ready to celebrate their Passover deliverance through Jesus Christ, their Passover lamb. I would encourage you, if you have your communion element, to take it out. Take out your bread. In the Passover celebration, a lamb was sacrificed and unleavened bread was eaten. And in communion, we remember the sacrifice of the lamb of God by eating the bread. So let's take and eat. And we celebrate the forgiveness of sins by drinking of the cup. Let's drink. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that you that you love us so much that you that you tell us what church life ought to look like. I thank you that you love us so much that you tell us what our lives ought to look like. Thank you that you love us so much that you provided a sacrifice for us so that when we fall short of those things, we can still be seen as righteous, as justified. And I thank you that you give us the strength to pursue holiness in our own lives. And I ask that we would consider the sin that's in our lives and we would seek to eradicate it so that we might be holy, unleavened, and righteous. In your son's name I pray, amen.